Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir. I'm Polina Ivanova. Today we have a fascinating program about Mughal gardens in Kashmir, and we're going to be speaking with Jan Hanrit. He has multiple titles. Among them is Professor of Practice at the Preservation Studies Program at Boston University. At the same time, he's also a fellow at the Garden and Landscape Studies uh, at Dumbarton Oaks, uh, which we're currently recording. And he's finally also one of the directors of the Atelier Anonymous uh, Landscape Consultancy. This is a special program because it's really, it's the first time we've had a practitioner and a conservator on the podcast. And it's also, I think, one of our very first podcasts on Mughal history. And I, what we'll be talking today is about Mughal gardens and Kashmir, uh, and particularly, how do we recreate their historical past? You know, often we know, many people might know about the mythical Persian garden, the Jaharba, uh, might know about Mughal gardens in Agra or in Delhi. Uh, but, you know, this world of Kashmiri gardens uh, has really not been explored at all. And we're going to be looking at their significance, but also how do we conserve them? How do we recreate them? And what is, what is involved in the conservation of landscape? And also kind of the practice and discourse of cultural heritage uh, within a conflict region. So welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to have this chance to speak with you about this fascinating subject. Um, so... Let's just start with this basic question. You know, you're the first, you're a conservator. Uh, you're also a practicing uh, landscape architect. How did you become interested um, in this topic of Mughal gardens in Kashmir? Mm -hmm. um, I'm basically a landscape architect and uh, over the years kind of became more and more involved in working with historic gardens and landscapes and parks. And... Um, <clears throat> I, I worked uh, until 2009 in Scotland with the National Trust for Scotland. And um, when I left there um, in early 2010, uh, there was interest from the National Trust of Art and Cultural Heritage in um, the Jammu and Kashmir region. In, in short, we speak about Intakh. Uh, in Takjamu and Kashmir. So there was an interest uh, to have some research help on uh, some of the garden history. Mm -hmm. uh, they were looking at some of the key Mughal gardens in Kashmir. And so I came from a National Trust back background working on gardens. And so it, it felt like a really nice thing to do for a moment to help my colleagues uh, in, in Kashmir, uh, who are also part of a National Trust. So when you arrived in Kashmir, what did you find? That was in 2010, a really interesting uh, period because uh, my colleagues had been working on um, some of the conservation of uh, the gardens such as Shalimar Bach and Nishad Bach, um, as two, as the main, two of the main gardens. And uh, so they were kind of in the middle of doing together with the government who, who manages these gardens. They were in the middle of already doing some of the building and structural uh, conservation works. And so I basically found uh, these gardens in, 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 a, in, in a condition where they were open to the public, uh, extremely popular with uh, uh, local local. Uh, people, but also uh, with the, the tourists, because you had quite a good number of tourists coming from India, less from abroad. Um, but uh, so they were very popular, uh, presented in a, in a kind of uh, 
floriculture style, I would say. The Department of Floriculture is the department that manages these gardens, and so you get quite rich floral displays in the gardens. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they, 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 you could see kind of a very popular site, but on the other hand, I could also see sites which in some way horticulturally uh, questioned kind of the, their identity as Mughal gardens. Um, so, and uh, the idea was to focus on kind of what type of uh, horticultural presentation uh, would be needed to, to make these gardens uh, more Mughal, you could say. Mm -hmm. And so, Jan, what is a Mughal garden? Is there such a thing as Mughal garden? Is there an ideal archetype of a Mughal garden? Um, when we think about Mughal gardens, we think about uh, a number of very well-known sites, such as uh, uh, the Taj Mahal, for example, uh, which is a tomb, but with uh, gardens around it. And uh, in general, we see a very uh, geometrical laid-out garden, uh, often in a rectangular shape with cross-axis this in is it. the Shaharbagh. The typical, what we refer to as the Shaharbagh, the quadripartite garden layout. Uh, mostly um, the ones that we find now are mo mostly the ones of the, the royals or the nobility, so they were the wealthier ones, so you will see them as walled gardens mm -hmm. um, with, uh, on those central axes, uh, you would see kind of water features, uh, little canals, uh, uh, ponds, um, cascades, and then in the compartments we would see, currently we see kind of not the original vegetation of those gardens, obviously, um, some of the remnants possibly, like uh, older trees, but uh, in general they would have had uh, fairly lush, uh, vegetation with orchard trees, mm -hmm. kind of having a, what they refer to a fairly paradisiacal uh, impression. Um, so how do we, you know, we have this image of a Mughal garden. How do we get at, you know, your concerns as a conservator, that is the historical side? Because often, you know, gardens are in a sense, you know, ephemeral objects. The trees die out, things like that. How do we get at their historical side? In the case of Kashmir, um, the, we're talking about gardens from the 17th century. Mm -hmm. And so since the 17th century, uh, many different uh, layers of uh, development were added to those gardens. One layer being basically dereliction. Mm -hmm. For many years, these gardens uh, were kind of left to slowly... Uh, Fall, fall apart. And then at certain times, especially in Kashmir, they became popular as sites to visit. So like in the 19th century, a lot of uh, rebuilding of mm -hmm. structures occurred. For example, the rulers uh, would, uh, in Achabalbach, we know, we have images, for example, that show kind of the, the main pavilion, Baradari, as we say, which is just about gone, and it was rebuilt. And European, first European uh, travelers to the region, they would stay. 
uh, on invitation of the rulers, they would stay in those uh, facilities. So what we see right now in those gardens isn't exactly what those gardens would have looked like right. uh, so many years ago. And the question in conservation, preservation is like, uh, how can you still um, present and uh, preserve those gardens in a way that they still breathe uh, sufficient uh, authenticity and integrity? Mm. Those are really key words in preservation. And in the case of Kashmir, that's one of the issues that a garden gets developed often as a tourist attraction. Um, facilities are placed into those uh, gardens and you kind of create a tourist attraction, which is possibly called a Mughal garden, mm -hmm. but it may not be uh, so much a Mughal garden anymore. And how can we, through preservation, actually still have that useful new purpose uh, of, of public use, but protect, conserve, and present as much as possible of that kind of authenticity. So part of your task was reconstructing the visual image of the gardens historically. And I imagine that the other um, part of your study was trying to get at historical uses and, hist and significance of these gardens. How were they used by the Mughals? What, were, what was their basic social and political significance? Were you able to, to get at that as well? Um, as, a, as a researcher, I was basically trying to gather uh, an amount of material and information and analyze that, uh, and then pass that material to, to the people at the National Trust uh, of Jammu and Kashmir, so that they can work with with the caretakers, the government, to undertake the 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 actions that they find uh, necessary, and that decision sits with them. In the end, my my work is advisory. In on the subject of uh, the uses of the gardens, um, the main sites that uh, the, are the most popular sites to be visited, they are the ones that were created by the royal uh, imperial family. So historically, they would have been uh, private sites, but to a degree they would be open, like Shalimar Bagh, which was the main uh, uh, royal garden. They also had a site where they had a palace, but... Uh, Shalimar was kind of uh, a garden where they would conduct a lot of their imperial activities when they would be out there. And I can add to that that um, the Mughals didn't stay there all the, Well, the Mughal emperor wouldn't be there all the time. So they would go in the summers to Kashmir. I think that's a very important point in the context of Kashmir because the, we know that the Indian plains are very hot in, in uh, the summer period. And so the Mughals would uh, make, the Mughal emperors would make frequent visits in the summer to, not every year, but they then go up there in spring, stay over the summer and return because they would have to go over high mountains to get there, which would be snowed in. So they kind of have to get in after the snow and get back out. So when they're there, they're a little bit on, you could say, 
It's almost like a hill resort to them. Spent the summer there in a cooler environment. Uh, so they would go on procession via different gardens, but also at a garden like Shalimar Bach, which I was mentioning, they would conduct some of their imperial um, activities. And the garden is divided up in a section that was called the uh, public garden, then the imperial garden, and then the third part was kind of the Zinana, the woman's garden. In the public garden, um, there is a baradari from where they would basically conduct uh, some of their uh, dialogues with uh, the, the people who would visit. Um, I, I don't think that it was the wider public, the wider public wouldn't be there, but people who had a role to play in, in, in the administration. So it was a sort of public audience hall. Yes, okay. yes. So that would happen in a garden of the royals, of the kind of Chalamar Bach. Then Nishad Bach, which is nearby, that was built by Asaf Khan, who uh, was um, the um, brother of Mumtaz Mahal. Mumtaz Mahal who was the wife, one of the wives of Emperor Shah Jahan. And the, the Taj Mahal was built uh, after she passed away by Shah Jahan. But so he was not a royal, but he was family of the royal family. So that garden would be more like a private garden. So you wouldn't have that kind of uh, public audience uh, hall. Um, so it was more a garden with a very large zinana, women's uh, garden on the upper terrace, and then several terraces more for, for like a pleasure garden, we, we could say. Um, the sons or the brothers of the, the emperors would also have, have some gardens. Well, the brothers in the sense that depended which brothers survived because they mostly had uh, wars of, uh, or fights of succession and a lot of the brothers uh, didn't make it and the one who made it became the emperor. So visually it would be like smaller replicas of the royal gardens or they would also look differently? Yes, they, so we have uh, smaller and larger gardens. Size is very important in Kashmir, um, and this relates to, to the fact that we have a topography. Uh, it's not flat landscape like in the plains that we find. So they would adjust basically the use of the Sharbach, which we mentioned, the rectangular shape, they would adjust to the sloping topography. And while in a flat area, you can make a very large rectangular garden easily um, on uh, steep terrain, um, some places were more steep than others, but they did build some gardens up higher against the hillsides, and then the gardens would be much smaller in size. And for example, uh, Dara Shiko built such a garden um, at um, Pari Mahal, um, which has uh, several terraces in kind of very quick succession. So it sounds like what you're describing here is a set of gardens actually starting with, I presume, Shah Jahan building the, uh, some of these initial gardens? The emperor, uh, the first emperor who conquered, uh, the Mughal emperor that conquered Kashmir was Akbar. Um, in the 16th century? In, uh, in um, 1586. Right. Um, Akbar's, uh, Ak uh, Akbar's son, Jahangir, became the second emperor, and then Shah Jahan is the son of Jahangir. And it is during the period of 
Jahangir and Shah Jahan that we see the main development. Mm. Yeah? Um, like Shah Jahan's sons included Darashiku and uh, Aurangzeb. And Darashiku was very much a garden builder, um, but it was Aurangzeb who became the emperor and Darashiku were, was basically killed. And so uh, for garden history, we lost really a creative mind, I would say, um, while Aurangzeb spent less time in, in Kashmir. Right. I mean, he went down to the, the, the Deccan and built uh, yes. Aurangabad. And then. So it sounds here that you actually have a, not just one garden, but a whole set of different gardens uh, to a certain degree, presumably interconnected and competing uh, and kind of uh, built in relation to one another. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we see kind of a sequence of gardens developing. Mm -hmm. um, initially under Akbar, we see that uh, Ahi makes his first visit to Kashmir in 1589. Um, I believe that uh, Jahangir, his son, um, uh, Prince Salim at that time, he, he went along with him. And the first sites they developed were very much about consolidation of power. Uh, what do you mean by that? So, for example, they, they, build, they built the, the fort uh, in, in Srinagar. Um, Nagar Nagar, it was basically a, um, a, a major Mughal wall that they built around the Hari Parbat uh, hill as the core area of the, of the city so that they had a protective, uh, a way of protecting uh, the city and, and their new conquered valley. And nearby, Nasimbach was uh, possibly the first uh, Mughal garden that was built there which probably was used very much as an encampment garden for the troops. Mm -hmm. So fairly large, flatter area where they planted a lot of trees. Um, and it is at a later stage when Jahangir uh, arrives in the valley that you see more the pleasure garden type gardens mm -hmm. uh, being developed. Jahangir, he was somebody who loved hunting and Kashmir, obviously, is a, an excellent place for hunting. And he, he loved um, a good drink and some abuses of other uh, uh, mind-expanding uh, products. So he, he, he lived, you could say, fairly fast. And he made many visits to Kashmir. And he died, actually, on his way back from Kashmir. But during his era, um, he and Nur Jahan who um, was the sister of Asaf, Asaf Khan, whom I mentioned earlier, who created um, Nishad Bach. Um, they really uh, created a garden uh, uh, landscape, you could say. Um, they developed many of the sites and also several of their governors would start building sites where they would live or uh, spend time. And they had a very quick succession of uh, governors. Every year and a half, two years, a new governor would be there. So as a result, several gardens were built and you kind of get kind of one garden next to another. So if we see these gardens in the context of conquest, and um, expanding of Mughal power, how would you say 
these gardens? Did, did they map in any particular way onto the pre-existing landscape of power or sacred landscapes? Did they communicate with the landscape that was there as they arrived? Kashmir has a very long history and uh, has an incredible uh, heritage uh, of uh, Buddhist and uh, Hindu uh, uh, history with um, temples and uh, sacred springs. Um, the, the rivers, the water systems were very important in the Hindu uh, mytholo uh, mythology. And we must say that even prior to the Mughals, there had been already Islamic rule in the valley mm -hmm. for a few centuries. And so it, it, we don't have so much evidence of what the gardens of that era would have looked like, but we already see that there was kind of a blending of uh, the pre-existing uh, Buddhist Hindu history and the um, kind of Islamic influences. When the Mughals arrived, they uh, continued to, you could say, Resacralize some of that landscape. So, some of the if you're gonna control a valley, um, you you try to do that by uh, controlling some of the key sites, like the key cities, the key towns. And we see that a number of the gardens or uh, palaces or houses of the of the governors uh, were built in those sites. And so some of the pre-existing sites, like, for example, Achabalbach or Verinach, they were known as sacred springs. And at those sites, the Mughals created kind of a layer of Mughal gardening on top of it. So they expanded those sites. And you can see now there's, there's some of the well-visited gardens as well. You can see that mixture between kind of the historic uh, spring mythology and uh, the, the uh, Mughal mm -hmm. layout. And can I get a sense? I just, I'm trying to imagine these gardens and I'm trying to understand how they relate into kind of the urban fabric of, of Srinagar. Are they kind of outside the city uh, are they in kind of uh, the countryside? Yeah. Um, they, they are, uh, to a degree, spread out through the valley. Um, Srinagar is the main city, located at what we call Dal Lake. Um, and it is in Srinagar, because it's the capital city, that we find most gardens. Because that would have been the, the place of residence of the emperors or the place of residence of the governors. Uh, so they built a lot of gardens there. They had a huge amount of water in Kashmir in general. I, we, we have a very different situation here than in, in the plains where water is an issue. Here the water was basically coming from the mountainsides. The valley itself, the valley floor is located at about 1,700 meters, 1,600, 1,700 meters altitude, with the mountains around the valley rising up quickly to 3,000 and a bit further, 4,000 meters. So you would have had a lot of glacial water from streams, from the mountains coming down. On top of that, there is the lakes. 
So they could really make larger gardens. And they, the, the, the imperial family opted particularly for the sites with good water and scenery, um, especially around the, the lake. So in Srinagar, it's mainly at the lake that we see development. Throughout the city, and we also have mm -hmm. the river Jelum passing through there, you would also have some sites. But the Jelum starts kind of at the southern side of the valley, and um, it is there where we had a number of springs, kind of what they call the start of the river Jelum. Mm -hmm. And at those springs, which were sacred, they also would have developed gardens. And then in certain locations along the river Jelum, we also find uh, gardens. But a lot of those gardens are lost, or the sites are in a very poor condition um, or build up. But so you, we see throughout the valley a degree of gardens. I, well, I think this is a kind of a fascinating glimpse of, you know, this whole world of gardens that we haven't, or at least I didn't know about in Kashmir. Uh, you know, and when I think about Mughal gardens, I think of my experiences, in, you know, in the tomb of Humayun or in um, the Taj Mahal and Agra. Is there something that, you know, the, the Mughal gardens in Kashmir tell us uh, about, let's say, uh, Islamic gardens or Mughal gardens in general that we don't get... Uh, from these kind of more well-known examples? I would say yes, uh, but it's kind of uh, ongoing research where I'm trying to really uh, come to terms with some of the historical significance mm -hmm. of these sites. But um, if, we, if we look at Mughal gardens through uh, India and Pakistan, uh, significant sites like uh, Shalimar Bach in, in, in Lahore, or the Taj Mahal. Um, and we know that they're built like at the, the, during the rule of uh, Shah Jahan. And we see these splendid kind of architectural concepts. They didn't arrive at those concepts just out of nothing. Yeah. So the question is where did they get the ideas from? And what is the sequence of kind of garden development? And if we know that some of the roots of, of, of the garden uh, approaches come from Persia, we see that the, 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 the series of Mughal emperors created sites in, in India. And in my opinion, um, Kashmir plays a quite important site in that development of um, design typology. Because in Kashmir, given that topography, uh, certain adjustments were, one, required to the standard kind of uh, uh, use of uh, the, the Shaharbagh. I would say that they used the Shaharbagh in Kashmir, quite obviously. Some people would say they didn't use it that much, but I would say, but they adjusted it to the topography. Would you say this is a unique example of Jahar box in a mountainous region? Um, unique to a degree. I think that they push the boundaries out there. Um, if we start to look at the types of gardens that we find in the plains, um, they, from a planning perspective, they always have... Uh, a degree of terracing for irrigation purposes. But the terracing is pushed 
uh, there to another level. Uh, we see that happening also a little bit in steeper sites uh, outside the valley, but mainly in Kashmir they push that. And as a result, they develop a type of terrace garden which is different, which is more pronounced uh, terraced. Um, terraces also bring with it that you basically can look to the landscape. And while we see in the early gardens that the tomb, for example, is positioned right in the center of the Shahrbagh, when you have terraces, you can put your building on the edge of the terrace and overlook the lower terrace or look beyond the garden walls. So we see that type of developing happening clearly in Kashmir. And it's not only in Kashmir that things like that probably develop, but we see a lot of that in, in Kashmir. And at a certain time, we then see the Taj Mahal being created, where also the tomb is positioned at the edge of the garden. I mean, we see that already happening in earlier sites to a degree like Rambach in Agra as well. But I think uh, very important uh, lessons uh, uh, were learned in Kashmir or the Mughals experienced things there, got other ideas, got other creative thoughts. And I do believe it influenced uh, the gardens. On top of that also the horticulture. You have in, in Kashmir an incredible horticultural uh, rich landscape and that must have inspired also some of the plantations outside Kashmir. So I think that there's a, a major role uh, that was played by, by the gardens in, in Kashmir that to the present is a little bit overlooked. Yeah. And so I'm just, just one more question here is that by placing these buildings on the edge of the garden, there's a notion that the part of the benefit of the garden is not just the plants that you're wandering around, but it's also the view that the garden captures, right? And so what were the, was the view that they were trying to uh, encapsulate the whole garden itself or like the larger landscape of the Valley of Kashmir? The idea would be more that the garden is kind of the, the central focus point within the landscape rather than the garden being the garden only. Like if you have a Shahar Bagh in a very dry region in the desert, you will have a walled compound traditionally, and within that walled compound you will find a vegetation and a very rich kind of oasis-like sometimes garden. That is also very inward looking. If you then place the buildings in the center of the garden, you look from the gates or wherever, you look to the center of the garden. In the case of uh, the terrace gardens on steeper hillsides, it's not inward, inward looking anymore, in my opinion. You have, of course, still the actual arrangements along the water channel. With, and when you look over the water channel, you would look at a baradari or a cascade uh, under the baradari because there's a terrace wall. But from the baradari, the, which is the pavilion, you can look over the walls out to the landscape. And similarly, of course, when you stand in the landscape and you look to some of these gardens, like a Perimahal or a Nishat, you see the terraces sloping up the hillside. And anybody, in theory, could get a, 
a certain impression from that garden, which is often not the case in the uh, gardens of royalty in the plains. They, they, they try to keep the spectator outside. You know, it's a very private area. So it's also this kind of shift towards uh, gardens becoming kind of public spaces, uh, and whether or not they're open to the public, uh, kind of spectacles the, of sorts. Yes, the royal gardens in general and nobility would still not be open to public at that time. But of course, it, it means that the moment that imperial rule disappears and the gardens become the property of the government, a lot of these royal sites are preserved because they are the sites that became owned by the government. So these are then turned into public uh, tourist attractions or visitor, visitor attractions. And that makes, of course, these sites so attractive uh, because you, you, it's basically almost perfect built for, for visitors. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and I'm with Polina Ivanova. We're speaking with Jan Heinrichs about Mughal gardens in 17th century Kashmir and also about their conservation today. Jan, I would like to perhaps pick up with that idea of the centrality of the gardens that you've discovered as you were studying their history, uh, centrality of the gardens in the landscape. What were some of the important takeaways for preservation and conservation purposes? In my personal opinion, um, it really meant that in the case of these gardens, we should really reconsider how we conserve them, uh, how the government is um, looking after them. In the sense that currently the, the emphasis is very much on the central features, such as the main pavilions uh, along the central axis uh, with the main water channel. And around that water channel, we will see those kind of floral displays. Through my research, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that these gardens are clearly much more than that central axis. There are the side compartments still within the wild garden, and then also to a degree their features outside the garden walls. Such as in Chalamarbach, we have a channel uh, canal, we basically say we call it the Shalimar Canal, which is uh, over one kilometer long, and it was the, the, the historic approach route from the lake to the uh, garden. But that kind of uh, is not uh, looked after currently, and it's rapidly being uh, built up with roads being constructed on its embankment and uh, the soft landscaping being turned in a hard, concrete, engineered uh, uh, structure. So my main conclusion is that the preservation approach should really 
start to focus more on the wider context of the garden. Like stepping away from that central axis, which is extremely attractive to visitors and very pleasant. It's very pleasant in a hot environment to have a lot of water. But it also means that currently all the visitors go there. We get like um, compactation of soil, damage to the features, etc. Well, there is this large garden around these features, which is kind of laying in a fairly poorly uh, presented way. And I think that the focus should be more on the spatial experience of these sites, rather than the focus being on some of the key uh, build structures, the, the, the pavilions or the water channel, for example. But and that relates to what I was saying about the centrality of these gardens in the wider landscape. Um, it is about what is the positioning of trees, what is the positioning of some of the lost uh, pavilions, because several pavilions were demolished over time. And as a result, uh, the views which possibly were blocked are no, not long, no longer blocked, or the views from the garden to the lake um, are not guided anymore by um, tree plantations on the sites. So the spatial experience of that whole garden should really be, be analyzed. And I think in preservation, um, that, that could be, make a major uh, step forward. Um, so Jan, I know that you were part of the initiative to um, have some of these gardens inscribed, or all of these gardens in the whole, perhaps inscribed in the UNESCO World Heritage List. Could you tell us a little bit about this initiative and how you think that may um, help the way the gardens are preserved and um, reconstructed? When I uh, became involved in 2010 uh, in, in Kashmir, um, the local team had already started to consider uh, the idea of uh, applying to the UNESCO World Heritage List. Based on the research, we, we, we agreed that um, we should try to put a listing forward. And by the end of 2010, we had uh, five of the sites uh, accepted on the tentative list for UNESCO World Heritage as a serial nomination. So not as a single site, but five sites, which we thought would represent the wider uh, significance and richness of Mughal gardening in Kash Kashmir. The tentative list is the list that is kept at the national level uh, by in the Indian government for the purpose of um, the next step, and that's basically submitting the dossier to UNESCO. So the tentative list is the first step in the nomination process, you could say. Once sites are included on the tentative list, the dossier can be prepared. And that takes a number of years to prepare the full application dossier, which then is reviewed by UNESCO experts, and then if there is approval, it finally will get uh, a UNESCO listing. 
So on that note, uh, I have a question, which is, I think, something that often comes up uh, in questions of conservation, which is, you know, a wit, you have this historical site that has many layers of history, you know, from the 16th to the 17th uh, to the modern day. Uh, and as a conservator, how do you kind of reconcile all those different layers of history? Which one do you decide uh, to conserve or not or to bring forward? Uh, this is obviously something that uh, scholars interested in Ottoman history have to face all the time. You know, when you go, when there's a restoration of Suleimania, there's only the restoration to the 16th century, quote unquote, original or the imagined original. Um, but we lose in that process all the different interpretations or the extra materials and uh, additions that were brought in over the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. So as a conservator, you know, how do you approach this with the, 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 all these historical layers in the question of the garden? Mm -hmm. Internationally, there are uh, slightly different approaches to that. Uh, we have internationally um, several um, charters, conservation charters, preservation charters, that give us some guidelines kind of to follow. Um, and ideas such as uh, what I mentioned earlier, like integrity and authenticity are key in actually deciding on your um, preferred approach for preservation. And in my opinion, the decisions will always to a degree be subjective. Uh, how far do you go in uh, restoration? How far do you go in rebuilding or adapting or purely conserving or preserving as found? Um, these are very difficult uh, decisions, but it has to be based on the significance of all elements. Internationally, like I said, we have different uh, answers to that. In North America, for example, I think there is some more an approach to go for a preferred layer of history. But that's also because sometimes in some of the sites that the, the people here deal with, not all of them, but in a good number of the sites, there aren't that many layers, possibly. But in some sites, such as in Kashmir, with some of the Mughal gardens, we have several layers. Like I mentioned, there could be the historic kind of spring uh, and a later Mughal layer. And then afterwards we get changes by, for example, the, the, the 19th century rulers who made changes. And we also get a layer of dereliction, ruinification. Which has and its own aesthetic values. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The cultural traditions of the place are very important in that. For example, in India, they have still tremendous, tremendous skills in uh, crafts, craftsmanship. So if in Europe we ask sometimes for a historic building in stonework to be preserved, we will just often do a minimal approach uh, to conservation, we will keep the stone that is a little bit damaged and maybe insert little repairs and try to retain as much as possible the patina of age. In India sometimes, because the craftsmanship is so good, the craftsperson will take no honor in just doing minimal repair. They say, just give me the stone and I will cut you this this block 
out of stone again. The resources are there to do that. In Europe, we often cannot afford even the cost of doing that. And we don't have the, uh, the material resources, maybe. But so there, as a result, they may replace the whole brick and a whole pavilion brick by brick, and it looks maybe extremely new. And the same happens then in the soft landscaping. So when we talk about gardens, how do you do that with a tree? How do you do that with an avenue? Like if you have an old, 300-year-old tree, when do you cut that down? When do you keep it? Um, because the tree is for sure not going to last forever, but you still try to keep certain elements. So it's a very subjective, you could say, decision that has to be taken, but the subjectivity has to be taken out by it, by a very clear analysis and evaluation of all the options that you have. Um, as a Westerner going to Kashmir, it is of course sometimes very difficult for me to, 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 to say what the approach should be because we have our own background. And so something that we haven't spoken about uh, today at all is of course the fact that Kashmir remains um, a site of conflict, of armed conflict, of political conflict. How does this um, context inform preservation policies? Does it make any layers of history a preferred layer of history or not, or how does it how does it affect in general your work as a conservator? We have seen historically that um, the changes in rule, rule and uh, imperial control in uh, the valley resulted in kind of reactionary approaches. For example, in the 19th century until uh, Indian independence we saw what we refer to as the Dogra rule in, in Kashmir. And the Dogras repaired several of the gardens in their 19th century, early 20th century approach, often uh, through some dialogue with uh, the British experts, archaeological experts that were at that time in India. And so they often rebuilt certain pavilions. Um, but then we've seen that as a reaction in the 70s and 80s, several of those pavilions, which in my opinion were very important um, structures for having the right spatial dimensions of, of certain garden areas, um, but they were removed uh, in a way that it is like, okay, this was Dogra. Dogra was not part of Mughal, so we remove it. Um, so that's a politically influenced, conflict influenced decision, I would say, which I don't personally agree with. I think that um, the, the gardens are a mixture of historical layers and these features actually were very significant. Um, in other parts of the garden, we saw, for example, in Shalimar, uh, Intach worked with the Department of Floriculture to restore some of the ceilings, papier mache ceilings in the Shalimar uh, main uh, uh, pavilion, Baradari, um, and they were also Dogra period. So in that case, they didn't remove the 
uh, ceiling from the 19th century, but they decided now that that also is part of the history and it should be retained. So I would hope that step by step um, we understand or that anywhere globally that we start to base our decisions as much as we can on the really integrity and authenticity of the site uh, rather than on those political decisions. And just, I mean, to kind of continue the conversation, you know, as we mentioned in the beginning, you know, Kashmir is currently a conflict region. Some would even say it's under military occupation by the Indian government. Uh, and what, I guess, what is the response of, let's say, the, the Kashmiri public, you know, to these gardens, to these preservation efforts, is this, is basically current day politics, you know, 21st century Kashmiri politics involved uh, within the, the, within the, let's say, conservation decisions or the, even the discourse of cultural heritage um, yeah. in these gardens? There are several things happening in uh, India and in Kashmir. And one thing for Kashmir is, of course, the conflict. But the other thing is that we have a very rapid development um, in urbanization and uh, road systems. And traffic uh, is, has increased incredibly fast. In my opinion, um, while the conflict, of course, affects decisions that are taken at the political levels, uh, it, will, it will have a massive impact on, on decisions. Um, for example, I, I, I observe that we have in the wider uh, country of India, we have many UNESCO World Heritage Sites, but to date, we do not have one uh, UNESCO World Heritage Site in Kashmir. That was one of the reasons why we felt we really have to focus on trying to get a listing uh, for Kashmir, because they're a little bit left out, you could say. And you could wonder what is the politics behind that, huh? because uh, if you have Kashmir where a large uh, part of the population wants a higher autonomy, would they actually agree with putting a UNESCO World Heritage for these gardens forward? Through the Indian government. Uh, through the Indian government, because it has to go through a country. So those are very delicate uh, things uh, that do influence the activities. And I think that as a result, uh, governments or government departments try to basically avoid the difficult issue and not decide on it, basically, and just continue business as usual. But I refer to the uh, uh, extreme development, rapid development in, in India in general. Um, that, for me, is almost uh, the biggest concern. Because conflict has been around. Mm -hmm. um, but a very fast urban development that creates a type of conflict with historic sites mm -hmm. that is much more um, dangerous to the preservation of these sites than, I would say, the, the, the bigger uh, conflict of 
who administers uh, the region. Would you say that, ironically, perhaps the presence of the army, the difficulty of access to the region, has um, in fact aided the preservation in any way? Has it stalled the development or not? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, in, in the sense that, yes, a region that uh, encounters often slower uh, development, uh, mostly sees its uh, historic sites less damaged. It's a subjective matter. It's something that we've also experienced in, in, in Europe and seen in, in places. Um, but because there weren't resources either to put into the sites. Uh, so a lot of the sites completely uh, were lost. Um, while other sites, they, they may just lay around the sleeping beauties, you could say. Because the popular ones, mm -hmm. um, what you often see is that the, the, the most popular ones, while they, they are visited by 10,000s of visitors every day, they may have lost more integrity uh, than other sites. And uh, for example, Shasmashai is a site which we put amongst the five uh, sites for the serial nomination to UNESCO. But uh, a number of people say that it would not have enough authenticity and integrity uh, to go for UNESCO um, as a result of that kind of uh, visitor development. Mm. Well, on that note, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, I think there's many more questions to be asked, many more directions we could have taken this conversation. Uh, but I encourage you to read um, some of Jan's uh, articles and research on the topic, even hopefully one day go and visit these Mogul Gardens yourself. Um, so thank you, Jan, for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And for those listeners that want to know more, uh, go to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, click on the episode link. Uh, you'll find a very short bibliography that um, Jan will provide for uh, the listeners. And you'll also find uh, links to our Facebook group, to other related episodes, and hopefully um, in the future, many more episodes about the Mughal past, as well as about the Ottoman visual past. Thank you for tuning in.